From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. It's a foggy morning in November, 2014. Shane Bauer, a wiry 30-something with a goatee and glasses, wakes up in his cramped apartment in rural Louisiana. He's nervous and anxious. Today is the day he's been preparing for for weeks. He's about to start his new job as a guard at a private prison. Wind Correctional Center is in the middle of the Kasachi National Forest. It's basically a, a forest of yellow pines, sort of crosshatched with dirt roads. And you drive through this forest, and the forest clears, and you see what kind of looks like a factory, you know, a very utilitarian-type building, some guard towers, barbed wire. It's a tough prison. Guards like Shane don't carry weapons. It's not long before he starts getting death threats from inmates. And they start threatening to riot. They're saying to us, if you don't let us out of here, we're going to put this prison on the news. The news is something Shane is pretty familiar with. He's a reporter for Mother Jones magazine. And he spent four months working at Wynn Correctional Center to find out what life inside a private prison is really like. Prisons generally are very hard to get access to. And private prisons in particular are even more secretive. And that includes Wynn. It's run by Corrections Corporation of America, or CCA, a private company that routinely turns away journalists and refuses to release records that government-run prisons would be required to share. I decided that You know, I really wanted to have a completely unfiltered look, you know, where I'm not getting all the information through a prison spokesperson or a company spokesperson or a prisoner that might have a reason to lie or to bend the truth. Shane buys a pen that doubles as an audio recorder and a watch that takes videos. He also has a notepad to jot down his observations. Shane documents everything he can. And most nights after a shift, he goes back to his apartment sets up his camera on a tripod and talks about his day. It's crazy to be in a prison, and it's also, on top of it, crazy to feel like I'm this infiltrator, kind of, you know. And if they find out, they're going to be pissed. Through recordings, interviews with Shane, other guards and inmates, we're going to take you inside Wynn Correctional Center. This is not a story for young listeners. The U.S. locks up more people than any other country on Earth. We have about 5% of the world's population and more than 20% of its prison population. Now, to deal with that overcrowding, the U.S. turned to private prisons. Those private companies make big money. CCA, the company that runs the prison where Shane gets a job takes in $1.9 billion a year. That's billion with a B. Its stock is traded on Wall Street. So what does that mean for inmates and guards when a for-profit company is running things? That's what we're going to find out with Shane. And we begin on the day he applied for the job. Basically, I went on the website of the Corrections Corporation of America and filled out an application, sent it off, and that was that. Shane put his real name on the application and the Foundation for National Progress as his current employer. Now, that's the publisher of Mother Jones. And they did do a a criminal background check as part of the process, but I'm guessing they didn't use Google. If they had Googled him, they would have found out who Shane is, an author who co-wrote a book about the two years he spent in an Iranian prison and a reporter who's covered police militarization, the Middle East, and prisons. So his chances of getting a job with CCA seemed like a stretch. To be honest with you, I didn't think it was going to happen. But a few weeks after he clicks apply, Shane gets word. He's hired. He passes his physical and drug tests and gets a white polyester button-down shirt and slate gray pants. To blend in, he picks up a camouflage baseball cap from a thrift store and buys a beat-up Dodge Ram pickup truck. The first time that I went in there, I mean, I was very nervous. When I got to the entrance of the prison, there was a security check, and I had to turn off the truck, get out of the truck. Uh, I had audio equipment just laying on the seat, and um, a dog came and sniffed the truck. And my heart was pounding this whole time, and um, 
I thought that was it. But the dog smelled the passenger side, came around to the driver's side, smelled it, and they let me go. When training begins, Shane joins a group of cadets in a concrete block building just outside the prison. Classroom walls are white and flatly lit with overhead fluorescent lights. A red, white, and blue CCA logo is painted on the wall. And in bold letters above a dry erase board, it says, Excellence in Corrections. We went over things like CPR, um, policies on the use of force. We, you know, were taught what to do if we see inmates fighting or, you know, violence. We were basically told to just tell them to stop and call for backup. That backup comes from the SORT team, CCA's version of a SWAT unit rolling through wind like stormtroopers. They're the only ones who carry any kind of weapon. In training, one of Shane's instructors is the captain of the SORT team. He told us basically the protocol uh, in that prison um, is to verbally tell them to stop, and that's it. Um, Back out, lock the room, and as he said, let them cut each other up. So I was really surprised by that. What he said was, you know, you don't make a lot of money. The next time you get a raise, it's not going to be for much. So it's not worth it, you know. All the guards have something in common. They need a job, even one that doesn't pay much. Private prisons in generally, these companies like the Corrections Corporation of America, their main argument is, look, we can save the state money. We can do this cheaper than the state can do it. The main way that they save money is in staffing. At state-run prisons, guards were making twelve fifty an hour. At this prison, they were making $9 an hour. That's less than $19,000 a year. There was a lot of uh, single moms working as prison guards, and at the Walmart, they couldn't get more than 39 hours to qualify for benefits, and at this job, they could. In training, one of the trainers said, if you're breathing and you have a driver's license and are willing to work, we're willing to hire you. I mean, they were really desperate for employees. As training continues, cadets learn basic self-defense, how to put on shackles. They also get sprayed with tear gas. So they know what it feels like. And we just had to stand there as this cloud kind of wafted into our faces. I thought I was going to throw up. I wanted to throw up, but couldn't. I couldn't breathe. It was nasty. Wynn has tear gas training because the SORT team uses a lot of chemical agents. Tear gas and other chemical sprays are the way they maintain order. If a riot breaks out, tear gas. Fighting or stabbing, pepper spray. These are the go-to non-lethal weapons. After I left Wynn through some public records requests with uh, Louisiana Department of Corrections, I found that over the first four months of 2015, which is when I was there, Wynn reported using chemical agents like pepper spray and tear gas 79 times. That's seven times more frequent than Angola prison, which is the maximum security prison in Louisiana. It was more than any prison by far in the rest of the state. Shane and the other cadets also spend time in the prison as part of their training. I went in with my group of cadets. You know, we're walking as a group, and some of the prisoners are kind of eyeing the the female guards, making comments. You know, I'm trying to kind of be friendly, you know, say hello to them, but also not seem too friendly and trying to not seem afraid, really, is what I'm focusing on, because I am. Wynn is a medium-security prison, but it's a rough place. More than half of the inmates are in for violent crimes. I'm about 5'10", weigh 155 pounds, not a big guy. You know, I was really hitting the gym hard before I went there and tried to do whatever I could to bulk up, but it didn't have a great effect. (laughs) When you go into the prison, you see a lot of inmates that spend hours every day working out. I mean, they have nothing else to do, you know? It's very clear that if anything's going to go down, even if it's just one-on-one, I'm not coming out on top. Shane's very aware of all of this when he and other trainees make their way down the walk, the main outdoor artery of the prison. The cadets travel up the middle lane from the administration building as prisoners move down their designated side lanes. 
we walked down this narrow kind of walkway fenced in. And as we got close to it, I could hear from inside the building shouting. Cadets are about to enter the segregation unit. It's like solitary confinement, except in most cases, two prisoners share one cell that's eight feet wide and eight feet long. And the door opened, and it was just this cacophony inside of, like, doors banging, people yelling, screaming. It was just, like, felt really chaotic. And the reason that that they took us there was to show us a suicide watch. We got to the gate of this unit, and the guard on staff opened the gate and said to us, welcome to the hellhole. Welcome to the dungeon. After four weeks, Shane graduates to become a full-fledged corrections officer, or CO. His first real day on the job, he returns to suicide watch. There are two cells covered in plexiglass. Now Shane's job is to watch the inmates and take notes every 15 minutes. One of the guys that I'm watching for hours is staring at me and masturbating. Um, I'm telling him to stop. That only encourages him. And, you know, so it's like we're all stuck in this situation that we really don't want to be in. It's miserable. Suicide Watch is the only place at Wynn where one guard is watching just two inmates. That is expensive. The mental health director tells Shane the sparse conditions are supposed to be a deterrent, so people won't want to be on Suicide Watch. In other words, they make it as unpleasant as possible. People bang on the plexiglass, sometimes begging for more food. CCA says inmates on suicide watch get just as many calories as everyone else. But that's not what Shane saw. Prisoners on suicide watch have different meals than the rest of the inmates. They get what are called suicide bags, which are basically a brown bag lunch that has one bologna sandwich, one peanut butter sandwich, six carrot sticks, and six apple sticks. When you add that up, the amount of calories come to significantly less than what the USDA recommends for most men. Damien Costley is another inmate Shane guards on suicide watch that day. He's a super thin, young African-American man. He's in for murder and is wrapped up in his suicide blanket, a thin, tear-proof garment that doubles as a smock. It's the only thing allowed inside a suicide watch cell besides toilet paper, no reading material and no mattress. Just a steel bunk. He's saying, if I don't move, he's going to get up on his top bunk, jump off the bed, and break his neck. Damien is frequently in and out of suicide watch. Some of the other guards say he's faking, but getting a professional opinion isn't easy. There's just one psychologist and one psychiatrist, both part time and a full-time social worker for 1,500 inmates. He tells me he's having a mental health emergency, which I report, um, but uh, it takes about six hours for a psychiatrist to show up and talk to him. They talk through the bars for a couple of minutes. And this is your first day? Yeah, yeah. Were you shocked by that? I was very shocked. Um, It was really kind of an awakening. It's like, okay, I'm really starting this. I'm going to be doing this every day. Coming up, day two and beyond. Today, I lost it. I snapped. I had an explosion of anger that I don't remember the last time I had. This is Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. This is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. What happens when private companies run prisons for the government? That's what journalist Shane Bauer of Mother Jones Magazine wanted to find out. Today, we've been hearing about his job as a prison guard at Wynn Correctional Center in Louisiana. It's run by Corrections Corporation of America, or CCA. 
a company whose CEO makes $3.4 million a year, nearly 19 times what the head of the Federal Bureau of Prisons makes. Shane, on the other hand, is bringing home nine bucks an hour. It's low pay and long hours. Shane worked there for four months. Each day, going to work gets harder. Now, before we pick up the story, we want to warn you that this episode contains graphic language and violence and is not appropriate for all listeners. I'm pulling in, parking my truck, and it's like I'm taking this big breath that I'm holding for 12 hours. I walk in, go through security, I get patted down, put my things through an x-ray machine, and the gate closes, clangs behind you, and it just feels like you're stepping into a very dark world. Wynn is made up of five units that house 350 inmates each. They're one-story brick buildings where prisoners sleep and spend most of their days. The units that the prisoners live in are cement brick, kind of a harsh fluorescent lighting, shiny cement floor. They smell like a shirt that has been worn for several days by a smoker. They're not allowed to smoke inside, but that rule is not really enforced. The five units are all named after trees. They're known for housing different types of inmates. Birch holds a lot of disabled prisoners. Cypress is the segregation unit where inmates are held in locked cells. Dogwood is where better-behaved inmates live. And then there were ash and elm units. And those units, the inmates called them the projects. Amongst the general population units, they were, were some of the kind of harder inmates were. And ash is the unit that I worked in. Even though Shane's a journalist, he's also a guard. And that means acting like one. One day, the unit manager in ash tells him to search the common areas. So we're looking around... I look under a water fountain and uh, I see a cell phone. There are inmates watching us, so I know that if I pull this phone out, they're all going to know I took it. So I'm creating problems for myself, making my job harder. At the same time, you know, my job is to take the phone. So I take the phone. That day after I took the phone, we walked down the tier and count everybody. Everybody was giving me the meanest look. A tier is like a dorm. Each unit has eight of them. They're big open rooms with beds lining the walls. They're open showers, open toilets, with a low wall for privacy. Each tier and the 44 prisoners that live there are enclosed behind a large metal gate. Shane guards all eight tiers of Ash Unit with his partner. Uh, My name's uh, Dave Bakel. I'm 62 years old. Bakel doesn't look cut out for guard duty. He's heavy set with glasses that look like woodshop protective wear. Bakel is counting the days until his Social Security kicks in to supplement his retirement checks from the Coast Guard. I spent a lot of time with him. He would tell me about Civil War reenactments. He would go to the old Westerns that he read. And he became my teacher of sorts. When I got into training, I didn't feel ready for the job. I didn't feel uh, equipped. And Bakel basically showed me the ropes. Inmates say when Bakel gets mad, he sounds like Yosemite Sam. Goddamn paperwork. Fuck it. Goddamn. So it's Shane and Bakel, his aging, often friendly, and occasionally hot-headed partner, as the only floor officers for 350 inmates. There's a lot of time that I'm just standing at the bars. I'm on one side of the bars, prisoners on the other side, and we're just talking. You're just there living with these guys for 12 hours a day, you know? Yeah, you're just trying to see. The thing is, I'm not one of these, like, 18-year-olds they got running around here. These, these, uh... I started to realize that the bulk of prisoners in my unit were just trying to do their time. I want to be able to, you know, just go outside in my shorts and just my house slippers and stay in the rain and just, you know, I mean, them things I miss, you can't do that in here. That's Corner Store. He's an African-American inmate who's 37 but looks 55. His hair scraggly, his uniform tattered, his face puffy. He's been in wind for more than 10 years and behind bars half his life. He's afraid of retribution from other inmates and staff, so we aren't using his real name. I, I just want to go have fun, dog. Yeah, fun does not mean me getting in trouble for it. Yeah, yeah. Fun means just enjoying life. Yeah. I mean, I be good. Be, I want to be able to take my motherfucking shoes off uh-huh. and socks off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Walking the same. Yeah. Corner store is eager to do his time and leave. 
Shane gets along with him and many of the other inmates, but not with all of them. And there's a set of prisoners that I'm constantly clashing with. And the way that you do I don't, let, I don't let people push me around. You better enjoy it. It was really startling to me how quickly I changed. So when I start, I'm uh, really trying to be kind of friendly, kind of easygoing guard. I think they got other people who piss you off. I understand that. No, I don't got, it's not personal. It's not personal. I can't, hey, I can't step over. It didn't take long for me to be dealing with people that are kind of taking advantage of me and would push me too far. I start writing people up a lot. You know, um, showing people that I wasn't weak, and that kind of became my mission in a way. I already wrote it up. I didn't have your name on it. I already wrote it up. Yesterday. At the beginning of Shane's eighth week at Wynn, he walks into Ash Unit and is hit with the smell of human waste. In one of the dorms, brown liquid is oozing out of the shower drain. Inmates tell Shane there are worms squirming on the floor. Shane and the other COs start letting inmates out into the yard when Bakel slams the gate closed. He calls on the radio, code blue, inmate assault in progress. Shane runs to the gate. Break it up, come on! There are two guys um, that are basically grappling, and they're separated from me and Bakel by the bars. Break it up. Come on. Come on. Break it up. They're both kind of trying to hold each other off. They both have shanks in their hands. A shank is a handmade knife. They're trying to prevent the other person from being able to swing up and stab down. When I, you know, was in training, our instructor told us, let them cut each other. I mean, just stand there, tell them to stop, and call for backup. We don't intervene. Um, we just shout for them to, to stop. Come on, come on. There's a bunch of inmates standing around just quietly kind of watching. It, it feels almost mundane. And at one point, one of them breaks his arm free and swings up and jabs down into the other guy's neck. Oh, fuck, man. I guess he hit his ear. He cut off a piece of his earlobe. I mean, there's really nothing I can do except call on my radio, and we're just, you know, standing there. We didn't have, you know, pepper spray. We didn't have billy clubs. All we had was a radio, and even the radios were new. I mean, six months before I was there, the guards didn't even have radios. Weapon involved at Ash A2. Weapon involved at Ash A2. The fight lasts for about four minutes until someone from SORT, or the Special Operations Response Team, shows up. Fucking move! Everybody lay the fuck down! Lay down! They're the only ones who carry weapons and ammo like plastic buckshot, electrified shields, and pepper spray. He sprays the guys that are stabbing each other, and that's it. <coughs> Come on. Cuffs them and takes them out. <coughs> In the first four months of 2015, CCA reported 200 weapons found at Wynn. That's 23 times more than were found at Angola, which is a maximum security prison. So why are there so many more weapons at Wynn? Well, Shane says they didn't have the staff to constantly search for them. Every day, you know, when I came in for my shift, we would have a meeting, and I would count how many people were there. And sometimes there would be... 24 guards there for 1,500 inmates. There often were not enough staff to keep the prison running the way it was supposed to. CCA later told Shane he was too low on the totem pole to understand their staffing policies. But the company's contract with Louisiana spells it out pretty clearly. They're supposed to have 36 guards show up for work at 6 a.m. every day. One day... The inmates are coming back from chow. So I'm inside the unit, and my work partner, Bakel, starts yelling, code blue outside, which means uh, two inmates are fighting. And I run out there, and a bunch of inmates are holding one guy up against the fence who seems to be the attacker. 
This young white guy is rolling around on the ground, crying. Hey, we're gonna take care of you, alright? We're gonna take care of you. Just chill out. Just calm down. Just calm down. Calm down. What I find out later is that the young white guy is this other man's punk. What that means in prison is that, you know, they have a sexual relationship. He is the subservient one. The other guy is called his old man. Um, I don't know if he was trying to avoid this man or what the reason was, but as soon as his old man saw him, he beat him with a lock and a sock. This guy gets taken to the infirmary, and a little while later, he's back in the unit. He has two choices. He can either go to protective custody, which is back in segregation, or he can go on the tier where inmates have threatened him. Now, at Wynn, guards don't turn a blind eye to overt rape, but they do accept the more systemic abuse of punks. So by going back on the tier, he is assuming this risk that he might become someone else's punk. But to him, segregation is so bad that he decides to stay on the tier. Inmates would tell me constantly that Wynn was more violent than other prisons they'd been to. Wynn has no control, <laughs> and they have no control over security whatsoever. That's Corner Store again. For us fighting and stabbing, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise you anymore after you've seen it so long. Prisoners and guards agree about that. Wynn is hell in a can. Jennifer Callahan is in her 30s, and like most guards at Wynn, she's African-American. It was her job to keep tabs on the entire unit from inside an octagonal control room called The Key, watching feeds of the unit's surveillance cameras. I left Wynn because I had so many incidents where I could have been in the hospital probably right today. We was having them stabbings going on, and so I just felt like it was best for me to leave. It's just a bad place. In the first two months I was there, I knew of at least 12 stabbings that had occurred. When I got the data from the Department of Corrections, it showed that CCA had only reported five stabbings in a 10-month period. They weren't reporting all the stabbings. My luck, I feel like my luck was running out because yeah. of all the juking going on, stabbings. Yeah. Because that is kind of ha- being kind of hazardous to your health. Shane's work partner, Dave Bakel. There should have been more officers on the floor. Wait for the supervisor and anybody else to get there. It took a few minutes. I mean, just wasn't enough backup. The warden, um, you know, the higher level staff at the prison, they didn't have a lot of control over it, you know, because they want more staff, but they can't raise the pay themselves. That is a decision made by the corporate office in Nashville, Tennessee, you know, and they're having to think about shareholders on the bottom line. Since almost everything that happens at the prison requires guards, fewer guards means fewer programs for prisoners. A lot of programs got cut. You know, there used to be welding classes, um, there used to be hobby shops, there used to be work crews, and that got cut um, because there just wasn't enough staff to keep it running. So most of the inmates are sitting in the dorm all day long. Getting bored, frustrated, and angry. They can only take it out on each other and guards like Shane. Tension gets really high. People, people start threatening me. People start fighting with each other. This, this is ongoing. Stabbings are becoming more and more frequent. And one day, there were a couple of stabbings that occurred in the prison. And I came to work the, the following day, and the prison was on lockdown. And the inmates don't have access to the canteen, where they can buy things like snacks, toiletries, and tobacco. And their solution to the problem is lock everybody down. Yeah. You would think that somebody with a college education would be smart enough to understand I'm not solving the problem yeah. by putting people on lockdown. 
as the days pass, tension rises. You know, people are really frustrated because they're cooped up in these dorms. They can't go outside. And they start threatening to riot. They're saying to us, if you don't let us out of here, we're going to put this prison on the news. Hey, that's how we've been treated. Like We're tough. Refugees. I'm gonna do what I can to get we ain't got nothing. And, you know, they're saying things like, you guys are treating us like animals. We don't have soap. We've been on lockdown. And we're not going to take it anymore. I remember one inmate says, to me personally, he says, we're going to get you. I'm scared and trying very hard not to appear scared. And we're just waiting. This goes on for 11 days. I was fully a guard at that point, and I had, you know, problems with a good amount of inmates. So when it got to that point, you know, you really start thinking about that. It's like, okay, I know there's a good amount of people in this unit that probably wouldn't mind hurting me if they got the chance. The company sends in a sort tactical team from prisons around the country. These guys basically show up to crack down. You know, the prisons are locked down. They are going unit by unit, tearing it up, just searching for everything. In the morning meeting, the assistant warden tells Shane and the rest of the guards, These are guys whose job is to use force. He actually says to us, uh, pain increases the intelligence of the stupid, and if these inmates want to get stupid, then we'll use some pain to increase their intelligence level. In just two days, the SORT team turns up 75 shanks. An out-of-state warden comes in to talk down the prisoners. Wynn ends the lockdown. And the SORT team finally escorts the inmates to the canteen. Wynn is understaffed. And that means Shane and some of the other guards are working overtime on top of their normal 12-hour shifts. Shane barely has time to drive home, sleep, eat, and turn around. He also tries to keep his video journal going. Today, I lost it. I snapped. Um, I had an explosion of anger that I don't remember the last time I had. There was one day when we were doing count. So basically, the prison stops, the inmates are sitting on their beds, and we count them. You're walking a kind of catwalk in between them, 44 guys at a time. And after I passed somebody, people would be making these comments, the kind of things that sexual predators say. They're talking about my ass, they're talking about like things they're gonna do to me, talking about how tight my pants are, you know, anything. So I'm walking down the tier and Somebody makes a comment about how I walk, saying that I have a twist in my walk. Somebody says something about my panties. Oh, and then a, a guy starts kind of singing, and he's singing, you like that dick, you like that dick. But when he says that, I stop. For some reason, I don't know why, that is the last straw. And I turn around and I, I say, what did you say? And he says, I didn't say anything. And I just... I burst and I, I just start shouting at him and I'm saying, why are you guys saying this stuff to me all the time? Maybe you're the one who likes dick. I asked for this guy's ID. He won't give me his ID. I'm like, I'm writing you up and I'm shouting at him. I'm shouting. I feel out of control. And as I start cooling down, I just feel very ashamed. I'm thinking to myself, I'm not homophobic. Why would I say something like that? And I'm just really embarrassed. More of life inside Wynn Correctional Center in Louisiana with reporter Shane Bauer when we come back. The guard mind is getting stronger. It's um, kind of entrenching itself day by day. You're listening to Reveal. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Today, we're hearing Shane Bauer's story. He's a journalist for Mother Jones Magazine, working as a guard at Wynn Correctional Center in Louisiana. 
The private prison is run by a large company called Corrections Corporation of America, or CCA, which made $221 million in net income last year. Shane's been there for a few months and is guarding Ash Unit at Wynn, one of the more violent sections of the prison, when he hears... Inmates basically called man down from the tier. We need a stretcher and Ash. I ran over to the tier. There's a guy who's on his bed just in serious pain. He's holding his chest and he's kind of moaning. What happened? Go get the and the inmate said that he earlier that day had been to the infirmary because he collapsed while playing basketball and that they had told him that he had fluid in his lungs and they sent him back to the unit. They just called stretcher. Yeah, he got to get out of the stretcher. He got some water in his lungs or something. Okay, he got a stretcher coming right now. And now he's collapsed again. So I radio for help and they come with a stretcher. And hours later, he's back again, and he's asking to go to a doctor, to go to a hospital, and that they weren't sending him. And I asked a nurse about this, and it was like, you know, I've seen this guy who's, like, almost passed out. He's in serious pain, and she said, well, the doctor's not going to send him to the hospital just for that. He's going to the infirmary, and they won't send him to the hospital. We haven't been to the hospital. He hasn't been to the hospital. I thought they sent him to the hospital. No, just the infirmary. It seemed common for nurses or doctors to assume that prisoners were faking their ailments, which prisoners did do. But there were a good number of people who did have serious issues that weren't getting addressed. One person that I met was named Robert Scott, who uh, didn't have legs, and most of his fingers were missing. Yeah, how long have you been in the wheelchair? March. Really? Less than a year? Wow. That must be a hard adjustment. He had been writing grievances and going to the infirmary repeatedly, saying he was having pain in his legs. And at some point, he was not able to sleep. He would just sit in a chair because he was in so much pain, and he would kind of pass out and just fall over onto the floor. In here. Robert says he once showed his swollen foot dripping with pus to the warden. His fingertips and toes eventually turned black. His medical records show that he asked to see a doctor nine times over four months. When he visited the infirmary, the medical staff offered him Motrin, but he says they refused to treat him. When an inmate goes to a hospital for a serious condition, CCA has to foot the bill for that. Eventually, he had to have his legs and fingers amputated. People threaten me pretty much every day. This is from Shane's video diary. I'm worried about it. I don't want to get stabbed, you know? And this guy's on this tier who's, like, threatened me. Someone just threatened to stab us today. It just feels like this whole thing is, like, coming to a head. One day, the captain calls Shane into his office. Shane's nervous. This has never happened before. Shane walks through the prison to the administrative office where he finds the captain sitting alone at his desk. He has something serious to discuss. Shane's performance review. The captain says Shane has a knack for this kind of work. Not long after his review... I was offered a promotion. I was told that I could have either become a sergeant or a corrections counselor. Before Shane can decide whether he wants to take the promotion and stay, something else happens that will change everything. His colleague, James West, comes to Winfield to help document Shane's experience as a prison guard. Okay, reframed. I'm rolling, Shane, so just take your time and whenever you're ready. Why private prisons in America as a subject? The reason that I'm going into a private prison... Uh, is James interviews Shane and also films around the town. He decided that he wanted to go back to the prison and get a night shot of the prison. So I went home because I had to work the next day. It gets really late, Shane falls asleep, and James still isn't back at the apartment. It turns out James had been spotted taking pictures near Wynn. When he gets back later, authorities have set up a checkpoint. They stop him, they take him out of his vehicle. Uh-huh. When you get around to prison, you don't fuck around. Okay. Okay? Okay. Police body cameras captured the scene that night. Now you got pictures of this prison on that camera? Yes, sir. 
James, in a striped T-shirt, is surrounded by guys from the prison's tactical team wearing black ride gear. Spotlight and high beams from the squad car light up the empty country road. You got it on the SD card? Uh-huh. No, sir. I'm not going to show you that. The sheriff is questioning him. He wants to see what's on James's camera. I will take everything you got. Whoa, come here. James reaches for the camera. The sheriff grabs his arm. All right, you can't take my camera. I know that. You want to take the SD card out? Or you want to go with us? I mean, I, I don't want to give you that stuff. and You I, don't have to. I'll do. Okay. If you don't want to give it to me, I will take it. James refuses to give it up, so the sheriff arrests him. What am I being arrested for? Trespass. Trespass. You want to go ahead and... Sorry, and put your hands on me. Please. I'm cooperating. No, you're not. No, you ain't. No, you won't be. But in what way am I not cooperating? You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can will be used against you in the court of law. Of course, call my editors right away. Our lawyers get on it and try to get him out as soon as we can. Shane leaves his apartment and spends the night in a hotel. Check one, two, three. Where he records this video diary entry. It's been almost 24 hours since James was arrested. Um, he is in the Wynn Parish County Jail. I've been basically running on adrenaline uh, for the last 24 hours. I've hardly slept. Um, really worried about James. Shane figures he's next. First thing in the morning, I get up and ship away all of my files, you know, anything that has to do with reporting. James is let out and basically pack up the apartment and drive straight to Texas. This is Diana. Hi, Miss Diana. This is uh, CO Bauer. Uh-huh. Um, I'm actually calling because I've decided to to resign. Oh, Mr. Bauer, I hate to hear that. What's the reason for resignation? You know, I just felt like um, in the end, I just kind of realized that it just wasn't wasn't working out for me. Shane makes it back to California and starts writing his story. He keeps researching Corrections Corporation of America, now from the outside. He files public records requests. He talks to prison officials, inmates, and lawyers. And then, months after he leaves Wynn Correctional Center, Shane returns to Winfield, Louisiana. Shane's first visit is with his former partner, Dave Bakel. What's going on, Bakel? Good to see you. Huh? Good to see you. Yeah, How you doing? <laughs> You got some hair. Bakel's hair has grown out long enough to pull back in a ponytail since Shane last saw him. Well, as I call it, living here in uh, Hicksville, USA, there's not a whole, you know, a whole lot of, you know, jobs here. When I first started out there, it was eight something an hour. You know, I mean, you could wind up been there ten years, and still be making the same wage. It just to me, it's just not right. He says it got so bad that he quit. I'll say the last 18 months, I was in the middle of three stabbings, one there at Elm Gate and two in Ash. Now, Bakel works as a janitor at a lumber mill. He says Wynn used to be a better place to work when inmates had access to vocational programs, like the hobby shop. In the hobby shop, I'd hear a little table saw going, hear a router going. To me, that's music in my ears. I'm all for work programs because it gives them something to do instead of just sitting there and figuring out how to do something to make your day miserable. If they're occupied, they ain't occupied to think how to make it miserable for you. You don't have anything to do, they're going to find something to do. If you don't give them recreational purposes, they have only one other means of recreation, and, and it's fighting. That's Corner Store again. We met him earlier in the show when he was an inmate. Now, after 18 years behind bars, he's a free man. It's a sunny afternoon at a Baton Rouge park on the edge of the Mississippi River. Today, he's touching the water for the first time. That's the river water. Is it cold? That's the river water. Corner Store spent time in a state-run prison before when. He says the public facility had better security. When fights break out in a state facility, it'll be broken up much more quicker. I mean, they have the necessities or what it takes to do a job. I mean, Winfield is entirely different. 
Shane asks him what he would tell the CEO of Corrections Corporation of America if he had the chance. Need to beef your security up. <laughs> what you need to do. In order for all of his workers to uh, take their job serious, I think he's going to have to go up on their pay. You ain't making $9 an hour, I mean, $8 an hour, yeah, that ain't no money, man. I mean, nobody really wants to come work there because of how low the pay is and everything is just messed up. Shane also found out what happened to Damien Costley. He was the man on suicide watch during Shane's first day on the job. By the time this email reaches you, I hope it finds you in the best of health and spirits. How are you doing, Mom? That's Damien's mother, Wendy Porter. For me, I am having a hard time getting my vegetarian tree from the kitchen, so I need you to call up here and ask the warden to tell medical to put me on a vegetarian diet list. Wendy flips through some photos in the living room of her suburban home on the outskirts of New Orleans. He went to the prime. He was a handsome little something. Look at him. <laughs> and see, that's go teach right there. Mm-hmm. He was a handsome little something. Damien Costley was at win for murder. He shot a man for spitting in his face. The dispute was over a girl. Earlier in the show, we played a clip of Damien from Shane's first day on the job. Damien told Shane he was having a mental health emergency, and Shane reported it. Six hours later, a psychiatrist came and talked to Damien through the bars for a few minutes. Damien committed suicide after I left. Damien had been on suicide watch and was taken off suicide watch. Shane interviewed inmates and guards about Damien's suicide. He learned that it was SORT, the prison tactical team that took Damien off suicide watch without the approval of the mental health staff. An inmate says Damien asked to go back on suicide watch, but he was ignored. And on suicide watch, he would be monitored. You know, when he's not on suicide watch, he's just in a cell on a tier. And he's supposed to be monitored every 30 minutes, but... When I was there, that I never saw that happen. Nobody had walked down that tier in about an hour and a half, and he was being ignored. And he tied a sheet to one of the bars and hung himself. There was an inmate in his cell who was severely mentally ill who was just trying to hold him up to relieve the pressure from his neck. And he, uh, he was taken to the hospital, and he lived for for over a week, but was unconscious and eventually died. And his autopsy report showed that when he died, he weighed 71 pounds. He said, Mama, they don't be wanting to give me my food. And I called and I called and I called. I never could get in touch with Warden Keith. Give him his food. That's all he wanted was his food. He didn't want no meat. He just wanted something uh, like a fruit and a, a vegetable or something. He didn't want no meat. He wants 71 pounds. That was like somebody starving. I keep food in my house. I give people food. And he weighs 71 pounds. Damien went on hunger strike a lot, protesting the lack of dietary options and mental health services at Wynn. He filed a lot of grievances with the prison administration about these conditions. It's all about a dollar. You ain't nothing but a dollar. You got a dollar sign. That's what you is, a dollar sign to them. And you know what my son said? He said it over the phone. He said, when I get through with them, they're going to shut this place down. It ain't fit for an animal. Damien was bringing the prison $34 a day. To have him sitting on suicide watch every day, having one guard watch him, costs a lot of money. To have enough staff to walk up and down the tiers every half hour like they're supposed to costs a lot of money. To provide more mental health services costs a lot of money. This is a life, you know? This isn't just prisoners and guards being frustrated by the lack of services, the lack of security, the shortage of staff. This is a person's life that is over now. And... It's not coming back. After Shane left his job at Wynn, word got out in local papers that a reporter had been working there. 
A few weeks later, Corrections Corporation of America notified the Louisiana Department of Corrections that it wasn't going to renew its contract to run the prison. Another private prison operator named LaSalle has taken over. But the prison still has the same name, many of the same inmates and staff. It's just under new management. Wynn Correctional Center is just one example of one facility. As you hear this, there are 131,000 inmates in private prisons across the country. For more on Wynn Correctional Center and CCA, go to our website where you can see photos of prisoners and guards from Wynn and find a link to Shane Bauer's article in Mother Jones Magazine. I'm telling you, it is so worth a read. It's an incredible piece of journalism. We want to thank Shane Bauer, Dave Gilson, James West, and the entire team from Mother Jones Magazine for sharing their story. Remember to subscribe to our podcast. And while you're there, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps us get the word out about the show. Michael I. Schiller produced today's show. Cheryl Duvall was a senior editor. Ike Shreeskandaraja provided additional production support. And Peter Kahnheim helped out with the engineering. Our sound design team is the Wonder Twins. My man, Jay Breezy and Claire C. Note Mullen. Our head of studio is Krista Scharfenberg. Amy Powell is our editor-in-chief. Suzanne Reber is our executive editor. And our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado Lightning. Support for Reveal is provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson. And remember, there is always more to the story. <laughs>